it's not us. It's in a gated neighborhood. So, you know, people come through and they go, oh, wow, a gate and a big house. And my wife and I agree that it just doesn't suit our personalities. You're listening to Financial Grown Up with me, certified financial planner, Bobby Rebel, author of How to Be a Financial Grown Up. And you know what? Being a grown up is really hard, especially when it comes to money. But it's okay. We're going to get there together. I'm going to bring you one money story from a financial grown up, one lesson, and then my take on how you can make it your own. We got this. Hello, financial grown up friends. Sometimes we know better, but we do stuff anyway, like buying a house that just isn't right for us. Because the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we want to impress people, even if our job is literally literally, to study why people do stuff like that. We can't help ourselves. That is how powerful our own insecurities and egos are in making financial decisions. Quick welcome to everyone and happy holidays. We keep it short here, about 15 minutes per episode, but feel free to binge and listen to a few if you have more time, like if you're traveling to visit friends over the holidays. All right, so my guest is Dr. Daniel Crosby. He wrote a book called The Behavioral Investor. I loved this book because it brought really intimidating financial concepts, and they are complicated, down to a mainstream level so we can all understand them. Like why maybe we shouldn't all be into passive investing, aka ETFs, exchange-traded funds, that are so popular, how the whole thing could potentially backfire on us all if we all jump in. But the crazy thing here is that Dr. Crosby has done all this research into why people do dumb things when it comes to money, and then he goes ahead and by his own admission, falls prey to a big financial decision, largely because of his ego. Dr. Daniel Crosby and his wife are moving with their kids from Alabama to Georgia, and they bought a really big house in a really fancy neighborhood, not out of their budget but out of their comfort zone. His insecurity is endearing and I believe totally sincere. I hope you enjoy this chat with Dr. Daniel Crosby. Hey, Dr. Daniel Crosby, you're a financial grown-up. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, great to be here. And I am so excited you're here. We were introduced by a mutual friend and a fellow financial grown-up, Brian Portnoy, who was on talking about his book, Geometry of Wealth, and everyone can check out that episode. We'll leave a link in the show notes. You are, and I'm going to read your own notes that you sent to me. You are a shrink-turned-money guy. You have a PhD in clinical psychology. You are also the New York Times bestselling author of three books. Your latest book is called The Behavioral Investor. We're going to talk a lot more about that soon, and it is about the four most common psychological traps that we fall into. What a great teaser, Daniel. Yeah, yeah. On book three, I'm getting better at this. I was crummy the first time, but I'm getting there. And you also have a little firm called Nocturne Capital. Cool name. Who came up with the name? Well, my wife is a pianist and she likes Chopin, so she plays a lot of nocturnes. One nod is to her, who I love very dearly. And the second nod is to, you know, things that are nocturnal are most active when things are darkest. So it's sort of a nod to value investing and my dear wife. All right, let's get to our money story that you brought. It's about a financial mistake. And I guess we'll dissect that from a psychological standpoint. It has to do with buying a big house. 
we had a beautiful home, a more modest home, but a very nice home in Alabama that was very inexpensive, of course, as well. Almost immediately, like almost immediately upon moving back to Alabama, I started to experience sort of this lack of respect I felt at conferences. But then also I was just itchy, like just itchy to go somewhere new. So we started to have this conversation and it was couched in reasonable terms. And I think that that's one of the dangerous things about how we can kind of fool ourselves behaviorally. You know, I couched it in terms of, you know, it would be nice to be close to a better airport. It would be nice to have access to deeper pockets and a larger population, you know, all of which is true on the margins. But when I'm really, really honest with myself, the thing that was driving the conversation was A, my ego, my desire to sort of show people that I had arrived, and B was this sort of shame. Those were kind of the big primary drivers. But during the time when my wife and I are having the conversation, it wasn't framed in those terms. And I think that's one of the the dangerous, subtle things about human cognition is we can we can operate in ways that are based out of fear or weakness or greed or whatever. And we can lie to ourselves a bit to make them seem more palatable to ourselves. And we can really buy our own BS. We listened to the bankers, right? We said, you know, how much loan can we get? And we saw the number and we were, you know, rightly shocked by how high it was. And we backed off of that considerably, even by about 50%. But still, we never stop to ask ourselves, and I think many homeowners do this, many people who are purchasing a home, they they ask themselves, how much house can I afford and not how much house should I afford? If you feel comfortable, can you tell us the numbers involved and what that house was worth and what the new house was worth? Yeah, so the, the old house in Alabama we still have as a rental property. We've rented it ever since we moved out. It's been great. And then we paid $750 for the house in Atlanta. This is not a question of affordability. You could afford that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not at all a question of affordability. See, that's where I think the the nuance comes in. It's not a question of affordability. We got approved and could have afforded much more than that. It's not even a question of, is it a nice place? Because it is. But it's just something that it's not us. It's in a gated neighborhood. So, you know, people come through and they go, oh, wow, a gate and a big house. And my wife and I agree that it just doesn't suit our personalities. So what are you going to do about it, Dr. Crosby? <laughs> well, this is a, a point of weekly conversation because, you know, now we have a child who's in the local school system and she's on student council and she's really thriving. And so I, I don't know. I mean, we, we feel kind of stuck and there's so many transaction costs involved with the sale of a home. I think if we were to move, we would just move within the area, which is almost exclusively homes a lot like ours if she were to stay in the same school. So candidly, I don't think we'll do anything. Have you ever talked to the neighbors about the general culture of the area or the perception of the culture of the area? No, you know, I never have. And I think it's one of those taboos. And, you you know, you worry that you're going to get looked at sideways. But no, I've never talked with the neighbors about it. So what is the takeaway for our listeners? The takeaway is if you're trying to buy happiness a home is absolutely not the way to go. I think is takeaway number one. There's just so much involved with it. And your your hassle grows with the size of your home. And I think lesson number two, which is perhaps the, the more important lesson is be careful of the ways that you can deceive yourself. 
you know, when you're thinking about your financial life, be sure to get down to the nitty gritty, the emotional stuff, the pain, the insecurity. That's where I didn't go. All right, we're going to shift gears and get to your everyday money tip. What I encourage folks to do with their financial lives is to try and identify a point of weakness beforehand, to try and say, if there's a reason that I'm not going to reach my retirement goals or whatever it is, what would that reason be? And so I walked through this with a friend of mine who was over for Thanksgiving. We were talking about his upcoming retirement and he disclosed to me what percentage of his wealth was in this single company stock and it was well over 50% of his significant wealth. And I said, you know, I walked him through this idea of a pre-mortem and said, look, if, if something were to go wrong with your uh, savings and your retirement nest egg, what do you think it would be? And he said, well, probably some sort of risk to the business that would cause this stock to decline a great deal. And it's like, yeah, because you can't always meet that head on. I was aware of this over-concentrated position of his for a long time now. But when you try and say, hey, man, you got to sell this, you got to sell this, you got to diversify, there's a very human nature, a very human tendency to tell people to get lost when they sort of command us to do something. Your book, The Behavioral Investor, is your latest bestseller following, um, I think the, your big book was The Laws of Wealth. One of the things that I love about The Behavioral Investor is that you make us take a second look at a lot of the assumptions that we have, especially regarding investing. So rules-based behavioral investing has a couple of things in common. First of all, it has a reasonable fee. When Morningstar uh, looked at all of the data points that predict uh, investment performance, they found, came to the decidedly unsexy conclusion that the number one predictor of how a fund does is how much it costs. Because, of course, those costs directly erode from your performance. So the first check mark is whether it's active, passive, or whatever in between, right, it, it needs to be a, uh, have an appropriate fee. Uh, the second thing you want to look at is that it's rules-based. And this is sort of goes into the first. Rules-based portfolios tend to be cheaper than discretionary portfolios because you got to pay some you know, Ivy League genius to run the discretionary portfolio, whereas the rules-based portfolio can just run on algorithms. So rule number one, portfolio needs to be uh, adequately priced, sort of cheapishly priced. Uh, second thing is it needs to be rules-based. And the third thing is it needs to automate good behavior. Most of us have the tendency to do just the wrong thing at the wrong time. I mean, that's sort of the simple lesson of the behavioral investor. This was interesting. It was on page 193. You talk about intuition and which jobs have had the best and the worst intuition. So the worst, I'm sorry to say, included psychologists, I believe, like you, mm -hmm. also stockbrokers, like me, which is discouraging. Also, college admissions officers, which is really upsetting because we really want to think for all the care and the years of preparation that we spend preparing ourselves, preparing our children for college, that they have better gut instincts. And also, of course, judges, another important job, and intelligence analysts and HR professionals. Daniel, you're bursting our bubble here. Yeah, but if you look at those things, there's a very common thread that, that runs through all of them, and it's humanity, right? So people who do have intuition are, are mathematicians and physicists who have seen a problem, 
they've familiarized themselves with it and they can start to intuit like, oh, I, I think this is where it's going because math and physics and related hard sciences follow hard rules. Human beings, for better and worse, do not follow hard rules. And so the more uh, there is a human element to the work you do, the less intuition counts. All right, hot button topic today, passive investing. Um, and some big proponents of it have come out expressing real concern about the fact that passive investing in the form especially of index funds is really getting to a level that is concerning. So we know on the one hand that over the last 30 years, passive investment vehicles have beaten their active counterparts about 85% of the time. I mean, a little bit more or less, depending depending on what sort of asset class you're looking at. But I mean, that is like incredible. And to, to think that they've done it at a fraction of the cost is even more incredible. So that's sort of, you know, uh, exhibit A. But exhibit B, we have the real truth about financial markets, which is that as soon as everyone thinks something is a good idea, it sort of ceases to be a good idea. And um, it's something that's referred to as the tragedy of the commons, right? And it comes back from, you know, ancient times when there was like a common park or a common pasture. Uh, and so it's the best thing for all of the farmers to want to graze their cows on someone else's land until all of the farmers decide to do that, and then there's no grass left. So as long as a minority of people are passive investors, which is the case today, uh, passive investing makes a lot of sense. But as everyone begins to latch on to this, and as everyone begins to head in that direction, I think theoretically you have to ask yourself the question, does it become sort of unmoored by the fact that everyone's grazing their cows in the, in the same place? So tell us about where people can learn more about you and your book and your podcast, which we had not mentioned yet, and all the things. I'm very active on LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby, PhD. I'm at Twitter, at Daniel Crosby. And you can tune into the podcast, which is called Standard Deviations. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, my friends, let's break this down. Financial grown-up tip number one, if you own it, own it. Dr. Crosby is sincerely uncomfortable in his house, but it doesn't make financial sense for him to move. I asked him if he had talked to the neighbors because it seemed to me that he is assuming that all of his neighbors are the kind of people that live in really big or really fancy houses, unlike him and his family, who's really more modest, but bought something that's just too fancy for the image he feels comfortable with. He hadn't talked to his neighbors. Maybe if he reaches out to them, makes some friends, and sees the area as a family neighborhood, not a collection of just fancy houses with people more fancy than he is, he might be a little more comfortable. Or maybe not. But in general, I think it's always good to humanize what's going on in a situation that makes you a little uncomfortable. People may not be what you perceive them to be. Financial grown-up tip number two. A little blast from the past housing crisis. You don't have to buy a big house or an expensive house just because the banker said you can afford it. Even if you cut their budget in half, as the Crosbys did, if you don't want to have that much house, don't. Besides, you can always add on an investment property with the extra cash and create a little passive income, right? Thanks to everyone for your continued support of the show. It really means a lot when you write a review. So please take a moment this holiday season for that and be in touch on Instagram 
at BobbyRebel1 and on Twitter at BobbyRebel. And you can always email us at hello at financialgrownup.com. And big thanks to Dr. Daniel Crosby for being so candid and for helping us all get one step closer to being financial grownups. Financial Grown Up with Bobby Rebel is edited and produced by Steve Stewart and is a BRK Media production.